welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are back to short stories and we are back to Tommy and Tuppence. So, (laughs) what are we covering this week, Kemper? This week, we are covering The Case of the Missing Lady, first published in the sketch on October 15th, 1924. And this is another story, the next story within the Partners in Crime collection. Let's get started with our victim. So the victim is one Mrs. Morris Lee Gordon. Her first name is Hermione. She's a widow who is now enfianced to the famous explorer, Gabrielle Stavonson. And she's gone missing. She's never shown up at any of her known locations on her itinerary. Nobody really seems to know where she is. At least this is all according to her fiancé, who has come to Tommy and Tuppence because he is panicked that she has gone MIA and that something has happened to her. Poor Hermie, what happened? She is referred to as Hermie throughout, which I mm-hmm. really appreciated. So, suspects, Gabriel or Gabrielle? Gabriel. Sure. Gabriel Stavenson, the famed Arctic explorer. So, as mentioned, he returned to London two weeks earlier than expected. He was gone for two years. And all he wants to do is see his beloved Hermie, but she, as we mentioned, has disappeared without a trace. And apparently he found an ad for Tommy and Tuppence. We, we know that they've been advertising. So, hey, it finally worked. They got, a, <laughs> right. they got like a real person, yeah, like an actual real person to come in and give them a problem. And then there's Lady Susan Clonray, who's um, Hermie's aunt. She's a super fat lady. Um, and we only say that because I'm, it is it is key to the story. Yeah, I just I want to just say that I'm not a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> this is not my opinion. This is what is written in the story. So she's the last person to see Hermie alive, and she's also the person who provides Hermie's itinerary, on her travel schedule, um, and contact information to Stalinson. So that he can track down his fiance. Right. And by itinerary, we just mean she's like, oh, I think she's staying with these people and these people and these people. So she gives him a list of the na- right, those correct. names and, and he goes and investigates. And then finally is Dr. Horiston. No relation to Dr. Horrible or his sing-along. That's, you know, coming along. (laughs) And he is a nefarious sort who runs a nursing home in Sussex called The Grange. And he was once a famous doctor, but he has since been discredited as a creepy quack. And we will definitely get into that. So the world as it appears to be, Tommy and Tuppence, in their normal sort of state of Boredom um, are just like twiddling their thumbs in the office uh, when they're visited by a wind and sunburnished, very tan man. Yet another bronzed bl- man with blue eyes. <laughs> Blindingly Agatha, blue eyes. The blue eye, bronze faced combo. I mean, she even did it with a corpse or near corpse in Why Didn't They Ask Evans? Like, Indeed. She just can't help herself. And, and, and in fact, in Why Didn't They Ask Evans, we're dealing once again with Explore. 
Yeah, so, she really um, she yeah. she she loves a manly outdoorsy tanned bronzed right slab of man. Indeed. And so in this case, it's world-renowned Arctic explorer, which is our friend, Mr. Stoffensen. And uh, while he's been gone for two years, he miraculously got an early trip back on his friend's yacht because he wanted to surprise his lady love, his fiance Hermione Lee Gordon. She's a widow. Her husband, Mr. Lee Gordon, died in the war. Mm-hmm. She's now engaged to Stavonson, and she's been waiting for him. And he just couldn't even wait the extra two weeks. He, like, hopped the yacht and, like, wanted to just come home to her. Unfortunately, she's not at home. She's not at home. So he went to her aunt, where she was reported to be staying, and that would be Lady Susan. And unfortunately, Sovinson cannot stand Lady Susan because she's too fat, and he hates fat people. Really hates fat people. Really hates fat people. There mentions it multiple times. Lots of times. Lots of times. He really, really, really does not like fat people. The president knows how uncomfortable I am made by people. You want to know the secret to keeping weight off? Shut your pie hole. And in fact, when asked if Lady Susan is perhaps a terrible person, he kind of gives pause. He's like, she's aight, but she's fat, so I don't like her. Right. Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with her other than the fact that she's fat, so I can't have anything to do with her. Right. It's weakness. That's really all it is. Pure and simple. It's weakness. It's about self-control. You don't in the subway, do you, Amy? No, you don't. Do you in the street, Amy? No, of course you don't, because you've gotten a hold of yourself. Yeah, so, it's, it's, not a, it's not a good look, I would say. Not a great look. Have you ever had a weight problem? Yeah, I have. So uh, Lady Susan provides him with the aforementioned itinerary of friends on whom Hermie was planning on calling. But funnily enough, two out of three of those names provided are like, mm, I was not expecting Dear Hermie whatsoever. And then at the third place, she canceled at the last minute due to a change in plan. So he can find hide nor hair of his fiance. Right. And so he comes back to Lady Susan's just in time, conveniently, for Lady Susan to receive a telegram from Hermie that reads, changed my plans just off to Monte Carlo for a week. And this is very suspicious because a telegram, of course, is not handwritten, so he can't check she actually wrote it herself. Anyone could write a telegram and say Hermie at the end of it. I, in fact, kind of want to do that now. Do you send a lot of telegrams? (laughs) I I do, I do. I'm sure there's an app for that. Spending a lot of time at Western Union. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I'm I'm, I'm sure there's like some sort of like hipster, old timey telegram service I could find in my app store somewhere. Yeah, so he's really suspicious about that. And rather than call the police or go to Monte Carlo on a a wild goose chase or a wild gooseberry chase, as our dear friend Hercule Poirot would say, he hires Tommy and Tuppence to investigate. So let's get down to solving this mystery and talk about the world as it actually is. So I wouldn't say that there are like a lot of clues in this, but there are at least three. Clue number one is that telegram. And it does have the location from which it was posted, which Stavonson mentions to Tommy and Tuppence. And it was posted from Malden in Surrey, where he went. And he went there and he checked in at every hotel. He checked at restaurants. Nobody had seen any sign of Hermie. And so Tommy and Tuppence do the same trip, and they also have absolutely no luck, except 
Tuppence realizes that the posting had the county name in it, not just a city name. So the deduction here that Tuppence makes is, why would you put the county name on the telegram when you don't have to? The only reason why you would do so is if you were trying to distinguish two places that had the same name. So in other words... There are two Maldens, she assumes. She doesn't know that. They would go to the one in Surrey. But Stavonson just saw the S on it, and so he assumed. And so when Tuppence goes to check, there is, in fact, another one that's like a wee village in Sussex. So, yeah, the deduction is that it must be the one in Sussex. And interestingly enough, jumping ahead for a second to the adaptation, which we'll, we'll get to more properly after we go through all the clues, but I just thought of it now as, as you were going through this clue, Catherine, but there's this weird moment in the adaptation when the actor playing Stavinson, who makes some interesting choices as to accent and bearing and, and whatnot, <laughs> um, but there's a weird moment when he reads the telegram where he holds it really far away, and it's clear that he's trying trying to indicate that he is farsighted because he can't see up close. Mm-hmm. And I assumed, I was like, oh, okay, because they're, they're, they're actually doing a little bit of even like an extra clue that gets us to the idea that he misread the county and he didn't, right. you know, he, it was an assumption slash a misread because maybe he couldn't even see that well and they're going to have to go to the wrong city. But then they don't because in the, ad- in the adaptation they actually cut that out, which was smart yeah, because do. do we really want to see them go to this big city and like look in hotels and restaurants? And, and it probably, my... So my conspiracy theory is that they actually were at least planning to do that and perhaps did. And perhaps they did a little montage or something like that. And they just cut it because it was boring and they didn't have time. You know what? I don't I kind of like it as a clue, honestly. I don't mind it as a clue. It's just I get why they cut it when they were filming the adaptation because it's boring. It's it, it, that, that it's a boring clue to have to get through, you know, just to see them do a very routine investigation at restaurants and hotels and come up with nothing and then be like, oh, wait, it's the other Malden. But perhaps they actually filmed it and then, and then cut it. Why else would he have been pretending to be farsighted? I mean, I don't know. He made some interesting accent choices. This is true. That actor, there was a lot going on in that actor's head those many, many years ago. So we'll never know, unfortunately. But anyway, let's move on to clue number two, which is that Stavinson arrived early by two weeks. And his arrival coincided with the day that his beloved fiance chose to disappear off to the country to visit friends. That does indeed seem very coincidental. And perhaps there was a reason why dear Hermie was put out that her beau had returned two weeks early. You know, you'd think that she would be really excited to see him after two years absence, but it seems like maybe she's not and she has other plans. And this is something that Tommy and Tuppence talk about immediately after he leaves. They're like, maybe she's just, she has someone else she's interested in. Maybe she's skipping out on him. Yeah, because like if somebody that you hadn't seen in two years who in theory you're in love with and you're going to marry, why wouldn't you just be thrilled to see them? Indeed. Yeah, so So, she's, she's, she appears to be avoiding him. And the other man would be the obvious answer. And I'm I'm so, so glad that it does not turn out to be the ultimate answer. And let's get to that. Third clue, Catherine. So as we've said before, Savinson hates fat people. It's weakness. That's really all it is. So the deduction here is probably you don't want to be fat around Stavinson or he won't listen to anything you say and he will look at you with disdain and apparently he'll say terrible things about you to other people. You got to put the corn dog down. You got to get up off your dead one. You got to get moving. 
think good movie might actually be a good slogan for this damn Oh, my God. Perhaps that has something to do with why dear Hermie disappeared. And we will invoke our corollary to all clues within Christy Short Stories, which is if something random like, oh, say, not liking fat people is being brought up in the course of a short story, it's because it's key to solving the mystery. So this has to be key somehow. Let's solve this mystery. <laughs> Tommy Tuppence go to the Malden in Sussex, and they inquire about Hermie, but again, nothing. But they do see the very suspicious Dr. Horston driving up to the creepy Grange, and they decide to follow him because, hey, why not? And mm-hmm. because they just think maybe Hermie's being held against her will in a sanitarium for some, like, I don't know, previously undiagnosed case of the nerves or something like that. Yet another The Woman in White riff, which we saw also in Why Didn't They Ask right. Evans. Perhaps this one might also be turned on its head. I don't know. We'll see. So they go up there, and first Tuppence goes to the door and talks to the butler, saying that she's looking for her friend. The butler's like, I've never heard of Hermie. Mrs. Lee Gordon. Or Ms. Mi- Ms. I guess it is Mrs. Yeah, Lee Mrs. Gordon. Lee Gordon. Right and then Tommy is like, oh, hey, I'm a journalist, Dr. Horston. Can I interview you? <laughs> and also, do you know Mrs. Lee Gordon? And he's like, no, please go away. Right. So instead of going away, Tommy and Tuppence hide under an open window. And <laughs> as one does, and they eavesdrop and they realize that Horiston and the butler are talking about them and talking about their inquiries into Mrs. Lee Gordon. Right. And it all seems very sinister. So freaked out that someone is going to kill Hermie, Tuppence stays in hiding on the property and sends Tommy back into town to make some calls about this doctor. And Tommy returns saying that Horiston essentially was once well regarded, but he's now widely believed to be a quack with shady treatments. It doesn't really get more specific than that. This convinces them that Hermie is in danger. So they find a ladder. Of course. Because Tuppence sees the gardener, right? right, Using a ladder while she's hanging out there. Always resourceful, that Tuppence. And Tuppence climbs on up to the room in which they believe Hermie is being held where she sees a nurse giving her some kind of terrifying looking injection. So it seems as if their fears have been confirmed. Tuppence goes back down, talks to Tommy and is like, oh my god, they're torturing her. She basically says, you know, I'm going to sneak in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue her. Tommy's supposed to stand guard. And Tuppence goes back up there, climbs through the window, all to save Hermie. And then she shows up behind Tommy a few minutes later. Right, Tommy's like all worried. He's like, oh my God, is she going to be okay? What have I done? And then Tuppence is behind him being like, mm, let's go. <laughs> we, we, right. we need to get out of here yeah. immediately, like, like yesterday. Right now. And like, let's never, like, let's never, right now. let's never ever speak about this again. And Tommy's yeah. basically like, what are you doing here? You've been gone for like 10 minutes. Right. He asks her, how did she get back out? And she goes, oh, I just went through the front door. The danger has been sucked out of this scenario here because, as it turns out, Hermie packed on some pounds <laughs> in the two years that her beloved was gone. I guess she was missing him so much that she filled, the void. she filled the void with food. And she had scheduled some experimental anti-fat injections from our quack, Dr. Horston, to try to shed some of that pesky weight before her fiancé's previously scheduled return date. Remember, he's coming back two weeks early. So when he came back early, Hermie's friend, Lady Susan, had to scramble to cover for 
her so that Stamson wouldn't find out and presumably jilt her, or at least not marry her. It's a little bit unclear how much weight she gained and how much she thinks she's going to lose in two weeks. So. I know. Well, I mean, the sad thing is that obviously she's not going to be successful in that. And it's also what's funny is that Tommy Tuppence are like, yeah, so we're never going to talk about this again. And that's and that's the end of the right. story. They're like, they're not going to put it in their case files. They don't want to do a write up about it. They're just like, no, we're done here. <laughs> yeah, because they're they're doing a whole sort of Holmes Watson thing, which they do throughout. And it's Christy. So she's constantly riffing on Holmes and Watson in every book. But Tommy's basically like, yeah, let's go to a concert. Let's just shake it off. You know, <laughs> just go out, have some fun. And he's like, and you will oblige me by not placing this case upon your record. It has absolutely no distinctive features. It's pretty funny. I mean, and you, do, you do have to wonder what they told Stavinson. Did they just say that? That's what's funny. I think they might have not told him anything because I think that there's a little bit of an implication that Stavinson is, of course, a jerk. Even within the story, although it's not quite spelled out that they think he's an idiot and kind of awful. But I feel like well, it's in there. Maybe I'm just reading into that myself. They don't think he's an idiot, but there is an implication that they're a little bit like, uh... Well, no, don't they say, though, that he has, like, the mind of a child? Right. Tommy is able to also do his sort of Sherlock Holmes deductions, which we saw not work in the Affair of the Pink Pearl, but they totally work on Mr. Stavinson. Yeah, he, since he, he's, guesses, he guesses that Stavinson showed that up like, in a taxi. he took a taxi. Yeah. And he knows who Stavinson is, and he heard him talking to Albert in the waiting right, room. And, and, Tuppence, so. and Tuppence reads the gossip columns, so Tuppence could fill in the other information. Also, in keeping with the Holmes Watson fanfic or references, Tommy tries to play the violin and it's Terrible. awful. <laughs> and Tuppence, she actually says, I'll get you a nice little syringe and a bottle labeled cocaine, <laughs> but for God's sake, leave that violin alone. And then she goes on, if that nice explorer man hadn't been as simple as a child, he'd have seen through you. I don't know. I, I obviously think he's a jerk, but it's not quite as there in, in the story. You know, interestingly, Agatha Christie herself, who real talk did put on some weight as she got older, not in 1924 when she was writing the story, but she was very self-conscious about it and it bothered her a lot. I would challenge you to find any woman who isn't. <laughs> Jane Wilkinson. Because she has so much more going on. <laughs> One more thing to be angry about Jane Wilkinson. Jane for. Wilkinson. I know. No man! She's your white whale. I know, she totally is. <laughs> I think they're just sort of like, oh, sorry, dude, we, we couldn't help you. Do they get paid for that still? No. That's what's also kind of funny as the through line with this whole Partners in Crime collection. They're really bad. They're kind of bad at their job, like, as business people. This business, is I don't think, is, like, ever really thriving. Maybe as we get into some of the other cases, they'll find well, their groove. Well, it's a little bit... The funniest thing about it is when we meet them in Secret Adversary, the reason why they decide that they're going to become detectives is because they need money. They're, poor. Yeah. they're kind of a mess. Like, they're, well, they're, right, they're, but they seem to now live in, like, a fancy apartment, and they have... Albert. Because Tommy has a good job, or had a good job. Now he's, for whatever reason, they've put him on this beat. Well, and I mean, I, I assume the government is paying them, like, a pretty good salary to be posing yeah, as detectives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't really matter if, if he pays them. I suppose so. But it's just, it's, yeah, they're just not very good at their job. I like to think that they just ghost Gabriel Stevenson, and he just never hears me. He's like, but, but, but my Hermie. <laughs> I mean, eventually Hermie is going to have to come back, and let's be honest, those injections 
systems were not going to well, work. Well, you, so. you know, the saddest thing would be if, in fact, Hermie really hadn't gained very much weight and was just, like, torturing herself through, like, super quack things because maybe she got, like, a little bit of, like, saddlebag in two years. Giving Christy credit, even though she did, and late, later in life she was bothered by gaining weight herself, she does seem to have poked fun at the idea of dieting. Because remember the banting episode in the Tuesday Night Club yes. story as well? She clearly thinks it's stupid. She thinks it's silly. Right. And I mean, the fact this man is like so fixated on it is like disturbing. Yeah. You know, then there is a point, we should have mentioned this in the clues, he gives Tommy and Tuppence a photograph of his beloved Hermie. And she's described as tall and willowy. And also not in the first bloom of her <laughs> youth. But yes, she is right. described as tall and willowy. Also, I, I'm actually also remembering this as well, and this is a sad little tidbit, but apparently Archie, who she was still married to at the time she wrote this story, complained about the fact that her body was not what it used to be after she had a child as she was getting a little bit older. That's so, lovely. That's lovely. What a, what a nice man. So let's talk about something a little bit lighter, which is the two adaptations that were made of this story. The second one is the London Weekend television adaptation in the early 80s, and we've already dealt with a bunch of those, and we'll get to this one in a second. But first, we have to make note of another televised performance of this story that sadly no longer exists anymore because it sounds like an absolute gem. So way, 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 way back in 1950, there was an anthology series called the Nash Air Flight Theater that only lasted one season, airing live, as all things did back then, on CBS. Apparently, the Nash Air Flight was a kind of car, and the Nash Motor Company sponsored the series. They aired 26 episodes, and it seems as if the episodes were a mixed bag of dramas, mysteries, comedies kind of whatever, both original stories and adapted stories. And one of those episodes was an adaptation of The Case of the Missing Lady. And it starred none other than the incomparable Cloris Leachman as Tuppence. Cloris Leachman is, of course, the current record holder for winning the most Emmys. That would be eight, holding that record with another actress who has already made an appearance on this very episode, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. But unlike Dreyfus thus far anyway, Cloris Leachman also went on to win an Academy Award 20 years after this TV episode aired. In any case, the casting for Tommy is even more exciting than Cloris Leachman for Tuppence because Tommy Beresford was played by none other than, wait for it, the 40th president of the United States, that's right, the Gipper, Ronald Wilson Reagan. And it's such a shame we can't watch the episode, but we do have a bunch of stills that we found, which we'll share with you on our various social media sites. From what we can see, Tommy and Tuppence do a lot of skulking outside Dr. Horston's sanitarium, which is more obviously named Horston Sanatorium, with an O, rather than the Grange, as it is in the story. However, we can see from one shot in which Tommy holds Tuppence in his lap in their office, hey, it's 1950, I suppose, that the door to the office has the name Blunt on it, meaning that they did preserve the overarching detective story from the Partners in Crime collection. In one shot, they're both even wearing matching trench coats, which is pretty adorable. And there's also a scene in which Tuppence seems to be lying on a bed inside the sanitarium with Tommy clamping a hand over her. So it looks like in this adaptation, as in the London Weekend television adaptation we'll get to in a second, there were a lot more hijinks in the hospital itself. Which makes sense because there's a lot of fun to be had with the premise of Tuppence spending more time in the hospital than the few minutes she spends there in the story. Story. And that's a pretty good segue to the later adaptation because we very much watched that adaptation. 
And we would like to give credit where credit is due because up to now we have not been all that wowed by the adaptations. And while the production value was as poor or poor seeming as it always seems to be in these adaptations, this one was quite significantly altered because, as we mentioned, they excised the whole going to the wrong Malden thing. And they essentially get to the last page of the short story by about minute 20 of a 50 minute episode. And Instead of just climbing up a ladder and finding Mrs. Lee Gordon in the bed, Tuppence has the brilliant idea to admit herself into this shady hospital. And there's like a solid half hour of entertaining hijinks where they really build on, off well, of it's, it's, their comedic skills. Well, it's a very skills. short story. So yeah, yeah. They'd, they would have had a very hard time making a 50-minute episode out of what's actually in the story. Right, so they had to invent and do what they did in the Suchet series and create some hijinks. And I think they did a good job of it. Tuppence pretends to be a Russian ballerina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she has this ridiculous over-the-top Boris and Natasha kind of an accent. After the Imperial Ballet, I am joining Troupe of the Argilev. This is seven years now, but I am leaving him. He is no good. He is charlatan. You are totally agreeable. Uh, yes. So now I am forming my own company, the Ballet Moskovsgensky. Fabulous coat when she first goes in to meet with Horston. Oh, absolutely. And Horston also has this nurse who is a total kind of nurse ratchet... I kept on thinking of Young Frankenstein, actually, when I was watching it, because <laughs> well, because it's so car- it's so cartoony. It's like when you go into Dr. Horriston's laboratory, there's like beakers with red and blue. Wait, she's like she's like foul bluker, played by none other than Cloris Leachman. Hey, look at that, she's everywhere. Yes, exactly, Frau Blucher. Me. <laughs> I am Frau Blucher. Her hair is in ridiculous Princess Leia ringlets on either side. Like, she's she's got the sort of German Frau milkmaid gone wrong thing going on. And they just have a lot of fun with it. So Tuppence is pretending to be Russian, and then immediately the German Frau starts speaking to her in Russian. I am swearing this off. Never am I speaking the tongue of my beloved country until the Bolsheviki, the accursed Bolsheviki, are expelled from the holy soil of Mother Russia. Uh, quite so, Madame Moskovskinsky. She basically goes up to her room, and at that night she is awakened by what seems to be a hobo gardener with a hand clamped over her mouth, and that is in fact Tommy. He has put on a lot of makeup, and he is skulking around the grounds as a hobo gardener. And there, there is also, by the way, a third character who's the heavy, who's he's like the bouncer heavy kind of guy who is their henchman, and he's like the muscle. And at one point, right. like when Tommy goes in and pretends to be a journalist, as he does in the short story, he breaks a pencil in front of him with one hand, and Tommy is like, oh, gulp. <laughs> I feel like a hobo gardener is actually not the least suspicious thing that you could do. I feel like I would notice if it were nighttime and like a dirty <laughs> person were skulking around the edges of the property. True. I think they just wanted to put a fake nose on James Warwick and have fun with that. <laughs> but by far the most ridiculous part is when they realize that they have to create a diversion so the hijinks get upped a bit and Tuppence is like, okay, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to be really brave, but I'll do it. And then cut to I am authorized to announce to you that among our guests is the distinguished Russian ballerina, uh, Madame Vera Mozgovsgensky. 
Madame Mozgovskensky has informed me that she is graciously pleased uh, uh, to entertain and uh, delight us with a display of her art. Yes, she will dance for us. Which is pretty funny because she keeps on being about to dance and then she's like, oh, but just one more thing. And she actually starts narrating the story of Swan Lake. So now, I will begin with my first sensational solo where as Odette, the white swan's queen, I am bringing joy to the hearts of all in the theater and from the theater, the world. Thanking you. But first, I must be putting you completely in the picture. Unless you're knowing story of the ballet, you're not appreciating my unbelievable art. And then she's getting confused, too, where she forgets who is who. So she's, like, screwing up the story. And then Tommy is trying to bash in the door to Mrs. Lee Gordon's room. And she's, like, banging with a staff on the floor as everyone's watching, trying to pretend like that's what's causing the noise. Which is The whole thing is just absolutely ridiculous. Everyone in the room literally falls asleep because they get so bored by her presentation of the story of Swan Lake. We open our season with Swan Lake. Done to death, I know. But not like this. She tries to do a couple of ballet moves. Let's just say she's not the most flexible. So it's all ridiculous. And then Tommy finally gets in there and you get this great shot of Mrs. Lee Gordon and she's tied with like a leather strap to the bed and she's moaning. And then you cut to Tommy coming down and being like, we need to get out of here. And here's the crazy thing, though. In the course of this escape, which goes on for a really long time, Tuppence hits the German Frau in the head with a book. They almost run over the henchman heavy guy. The doctor gets like thrown to the ground. And Tommy, throughout this whole sequence, knows that they actually aren't criminal at all and that they're just doing a stupid weight loss thing. But he neglects to tell Tuppence that they like, kind of almost kill all of these people. And they even <laughs> they even talk about it at the end where they're like, oh, my God, all the assault and battery we just committed. And I'm like, the way that you guys staged this, Tommy knew about that. So that, that that's my only quibble with the adaptation. But otherwise, I thought it was delightful. I mean, I suppose if anybody has ever been on a juice cleanse long enough or dealt with any sort of dieting quackery, you do understand how, you know, you might want to run those people down with a car. The one I always think of is the, as the L.A. specific one, because so many people, I know so many people in L.A. who have done the, um, is it called the master cleanse, where it's, it's lemon juice. Lemon juice and ma- cayenne and maple syrup. Yeah, lemon juice, maple syrup, and cayenne pepper. It's ridiculous that we both know that. You've never done it, have you? <laughs> No, I have not. Okay. Although I have thought, I've thought about it. It's not good. There's no way that that could be good for you. I've done a juice cleanse before. They're not so bad. But it's like, like you're, you're supposed to just eat that basically until you can't handle it anymore. That's when you end. Anything that, that's meant to end when you like well, literally the, can't the handle thing, it anymore, the, the, no. The thing about all of those, though, is that the only thing that you're losing is water weight. Right, it's true. So a juice cleanse, you absolutely do lose weight on. There's no question about it. You're just going to gain it back and be, unless you unless you go off of like master cleanse and then like do like a raw diet or something after that. Although, you know what, actually, and this is the, the, this is in favor of the story. It's like if you are, though, trying to lose weight short term. 
right? Losing water weight yeah. is totally legit. I mean, that's what celebrities do before a premiere or like an award show, right? They just get dehydrated. Well, I, no, seriously. I think that that's one of the reasons the master cleanse became so popular is because supposedly Beyonce did it before she started shooting Dream Girls. That was one of the big things where it first started becoming like a popular thing that people did. I definitely had I had in, in my head that Beyonce did it at some point. I knew that. Yeah. I associated it with Beyonce. But yeah, so for Mrs. Lee Gordon, for Hermie, you know, if she needed to just kind of like for that moment when her beloved would see her, maybe it makes sense. I've definitely juice cleansed before being like a bridesmaid in a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> This was a very Woodhouseian Christie story. It was yeah. it was absurd. Well, and the whole story is actually very light. Like their yeah. interactions at the beginning are pretty charming, and, and it makes sense that this would be a Tommy and Tuppence story. It felt like a Friends episode almost. It's frothy. It's light. It's silly. It's stupid, but funny. It's farcical. So you yeah, know, any sort yeah. of like 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 a good episode of like Frasier or something, you can right. also sort of see yeah. happening. Yeah, that yeah, that's a good call. So that is the case of the missing lady. Join us next week when we tackle our next Tommy and Toppin short story, which is not Blind Man's Buff because that is yet another thriller interstitial, which we are going to skip right over. But the Man in the Mist. That one sounds rather spooky. I'm intrigued. I can't wait. And in the meantime, as always, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or you can find Catherine at Brobcat or find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha and our Instagram account is All About Agatha. Please do rate and review us wherever you are listening to this podcast. It really, really helps us out. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.